Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. And we're back with an all-new Keep It. And last night, cocaine was trending on Twitter. Which means Ira is a happy boy. (laughs) (laughs) They must have had a great night after the RNC. Uh, Truly, truly, the RNC. The theme of it was that (laughs) everyone was on some kind of upper. Because definitely, I don't know. I don't know if you all saw it, and I hope you did not. (laughs) I was watching it because I was engaged in Crooked's, you know, live watch, and um, truly hurt my soul. But it was also very funny. (laughs) I did not find it funny. I found it horrifying constantly. But I was happy to watch it so that maybe people listening to this podcast would want a slight rundown of the insanity because no thinking grown-up should have to watch it, especially, you know, the Republicans are very um, cash about the voting process going totally awry this season, so I'm not interested (laughs) in their point of view, even theoretically now. Mm -hmm. So nobody should have to watch anymore. That said, I mean, the takeaway is that these people screamed at us to compensate for content, and it was Arguably memeable, but it was also frightening. Yeah, every every four years, the RNC is its own brand of disturbing and wild. Uh, this one featured the words cancel culture maybe 60,000 times, and that was fun, so that I did have a ticker going. But other than that, there was no reason for me to have watched it. I know the Pod Save America boys will hit every single point way harder than I could, so... I will just say that, yes, the RNC is usually a racist think tank. However... This was something beyond that. You know, we talk about how they become like a parody of themselves. And, you know, 2016 was largely every other Republican trying to get rid of Donald Trump and insist that, you know, his um, talking points, his like racism, like his demagoguery were like anti their party, even though this was something their party had created. And now it like seeing... The president's son's girlfriend, right? Just screaming <laughs> on television is is absolutely insane to me. And you know, if you thought that the way that the Republicans used like the Southern strategy before, or you know, like the Willie Horton attack ads um, to take down Dukakis. That's all this was, too, because that's all they could lean on. Like that fucking couple who waved their guns at protesters <laughs> talking about how Biden wants to tear out the suburbs and put low-income housing in your suburbs. I'm like, the racism is no longer the subtext. It is the only thing that they can put under the big top. Tigers are jumping through the racism hoops. <laughs> <laughs> it really is... I I guess expected, but still shocking to me the amount of times we heard the word radical. If you say the word radical that many times, I assume 
the villain of the Republican Party is Shredder. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. The idea of Joe Biden being radical is so too low. He's a it socialist so now. He's a socialist now, yeah. Lewis. I had no idea that Biden and Harris bowed to everything the radical socialist left says. If that's the case, then... Hello, let's celebrate that. <laughs> <laughs> Is Eugene V. Debs on the ticket? Jesus, it's so wild. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing that I feel like also connects it to what we've talked about on Keep It is this idea that people hate consequences for their actions. And we've talked on this show about celebrities sort of decrying cancel culture and how then um, other liberals start using that phrase, you know, when they're attacked, quote unquote, attacked. And then you should have seen it coming when you saw the likes of like, Barry Weiss, you know, and like other people claiming that they were being attacked by mobs on the left and canceled, essentially taking on this um, vocabulary that people on our side made popular. Mm -hmm. And now you have Republicans decrying cancel culture and using these exact same talking points last night. They sounded exactly like that interview with Kevin Hart and Ellen. And when you have other celebrities, like even fucking like Kelly Rowland last week, you know, like did some random ass Instagram post about like, Glad I was never canceled. You know, God's the only one can cancel. I'm like, <laughs> Kelly, I, Kelly, I love you, you know? But, like, the nonsense has to stop because the nonsense has now turned into messaging and talking points for these demons. And who's to blame? I want to add also, th- this is the most ancient talking point about this. And, of course, we don't want to talk about cancel culture anymore. It's we're well acquainted with what a bullshit term it is. But mm-hmm. still, when people decry cancel culture, what they're doing is not mentioning the people that shouldn't have been canceled. Yeah. It's like they're not taking on the responsibility of being like, you know who should be brought back? Harvey Weinstein. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> tell me the person you are most upset about like a part of me wants to believe it's someone like louis ck like they think what he did wasn't that bad or something mm. but you have to say that i want to hear you defend the person who shouldn't have been canceled i find people lacking specificity in this argument on purpose mm-hmm. yeah and people always fail to mention that like the ramifications of being canceled don't ever include being canceled and leaving the environment it's always more notoriety more conversations around your name and ultimately like a beneficial outcome for having done a fucked up thing whatever it may have been in the first place Mm -hmm. ever the only people who actually really get canceled are black people in the republican party who shuck and jive (laughs) to get attention and then they get thrown out um, when they're not useful anymore you know um Omarosa, Stacey Dash, Diamond and Silk, you know, Candace fucking Owens. She has a few weeks left at best <laughs> yes. before something flips she, on her. She thought being involved with Toilet Paper USA, whatever TPUSA stands for, <laughs> um, she would get her a spot at the RNC, but no, they had Charlie Kirk up there, you know, someone pulled him <laughs> yeah. out of the locker he's been shoved in every day of high school <laughs> and let him talk, <laughs> open it up, you know, and it's like, those are the people who get canceled. And that brings me to my last mm-hmm. thing about the RNC. Would you have people like Herschel Walker up there or um, Tim Scott, who is constantly doing a tap dance of um, not trying to attack Biden and Harris, but also 
quietly like kissing Trump's ass because he's like a floater in the Big Brother house. You know, <laughs> um, he can't offend either side because he needs to survive no matter who's in power. Everyone like him or Nikki Haley, you know, like they love to talk about how they've overcome um, and America isn't racist um, because they overcame and like their parents had to deal with some of the worst things imaginable. But like now look at them. Um, they've succeeded and gotten to like the hallowed halls of um, the um, Senate or the House or wherever. And it's like, what did you overcome, though? <laughs> they, they never say that the, the racism is what they had to overcome mm-hmm, right. because if the racism didn't exist – There'd be more people like you, and you wouldn't be like the handful of black people or brown people on the RNC stage surrounded by a bunch of like lunatic Caucasians. Yeah. Or frequently like cloaking their struggle in being low class or being in an economic, having economic barriers, but not understanding why those barriers were put against them. And then the xenophobia and hatred of immigrants that has continually existed throughout all of their childhood. And it's just all this like, stemming from anti-blackness you know mm-hmm. it's it's this black exceptionalism that exists in this world where you if you're a republican you think that like you're the best of the best and everyone else hates you because like you are smarter than the rest and you don't want to be poor and like you overcame your circumstances and that is weirdly a thing that also exists like on our side you know with like the talented 10 you know or like mm-hmm. the idea of like other black exceptionalism like in jack and jill you know or like um thinking that you're better than some other black people, you know, because, like, you took AP classes and shit, you know? And it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's all wrapped up in the same gross anti-blackness. Uh, people should also listen to um, At the Intersection, this podcast that I was listening to about this, um, that Gene Demby from um, NPR Code Switch was just on, um, because it, it ties in just how much those people on that side have in common with black people on the left, you know, who sort of believe those same things and they all stem from this weird anti-blackness. And it's the same way this cancel culture shit ties into everything, you know? Like, the shit that we do, they look at it and they say, oh, this is how you divide people. But by the way, just to tie this up, I had never noticed this about Nikki Haley before. She really came across like a hypnotized Nia Vardalis and I had never put those two <laughs> names together before. And... Nia Vardalis, that's a woman I trust, so it was very chilling, and I hope nobody goes through what I went through. The RNC (laughs) mostly is for the people who like to prematurely ejaculate over the idea of Nikki Haley, like, running for office in 2024, you know? It's, like, for pundits who like to watch all of this insanity and come away with some talking point that makes it seem like it was sane, where they can be like, well, you know, she was very Mm -hmm. measured last night. I'm like, did you see the rest of it? <laughs> okay, well, Nikki Haley of all of them felt the most sedated, okay. if anything. I was like, girl, why didn't you join the party, girl? What happened? It was like watching the Batman, and every person <laughs> on that stage had escaped Arkham. <laughs> it's like, wow, that woman delivered a really good joke in that snuff film. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. We have a wonderful episode today. We are going to get into some culture. Um, some RNC counter programming <laughs> um, <laughs> that maybe you should um, 
clockwork orange into yourself so you don't yeah. have to think about um, Don Jr. looking like the end of Scarface. Right. <laughs> Jesus. The deleted scenes. Yeah. Um, we're also going to talk a bit about two horrifying um, incidents um, this past week. Um, Jacob Blake and also um, Megan Thee Stallion um, coming out about um, Tory Lanez being the person who shot her. We're also going to have a chat with Rami Youssef, star of the Hulu show, (laughs) Rami. I'm so excited for that one. That'll be a a good moment in this kind of dismal podcast this week. Who'd have thought that when we created that Keep It board and I put a Rami on the board? Oh, yes. That... That that we would end up wanting him off the board, but then we got a better Rami. <laughs> we we just we just we just threw a dart at a cast list of Mr. Robot and got a different Rami. Is what happened, and that's okay. And that's okay. I also wouldn't mind putting Rami from Project Runway season four on the board. He was a wonderful Drake, if I remember correctly. <laughs> we'll be right back. There are only a few weekends left between now and the election, so make them count. This weekend, Crooked's Adopt-A-State program is hosting a special weekend of action to help Democrats take back the Senate. Sign up to Adopt-A-State at votesafeamerica.com adopt, and they'll send you details about what you can do to help from home. Obviously, we just talked about the fucking RNC, and um, if you, as you're listening to this now, two nights have aired already, and there's still two more nights Ugh. of the RNC, because it is like a four-part Birth of a Nation miniseries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tune in to tonight, where Trump's gardener's sister's friend's brother is going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, to counteract the RNC, what have y'all been consuming this week? Um, in terms of things that are newish, uh, which you know is not my bag, I'm <laughs> not at all. A, no, <laughs> I am watching a very silly British show called Steph Let's Flats. Do you know what this is? No, mm-hmm. I know what a flat. I know a flat is an apartment, right? Correct. Yes. There we go. Is this sort of like, um, are you being served for a millennial generation? It is goofy, and it is just one bumbling idiot who shows people apartments and is a doofus about it. <laughs> uh, the episodes, the, uh, there's two seasons, and there's six episodes apiece, the way we like it Britishly, and uh, uh, it's a breeze, and if you just want something to enjoy something stupid in a good way, stupid is getting such a bad rap these days, you know, it's ruining the world, etc. This is fun to watch. I love the actor who's in it. Mm-hmm. But also, more importantly this weekend, I watched an old movie that I had seen a little bit of, like, growing up. It was always on TCM. And I talked about this with Ira earlier this weekend. So I'm sorry to bore you already. but It's okay. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> the Prime of Miss Jean Brody, which is the movie Maggie Smith won an Oscar for in 1969. She's this narcissistic but um, exciting teacher for a girls' school. I rewatched it this weekend. It is the best, best actress performance of all time. I wanted to talk to you about an experience I had watching this. Not only did I love it so much and was licking up her line readings because this bitch is in such fucking control. You have never experienced (laughs) a tyranny of sass like this woman brings. 
I had to watch it three more times. I have watched The Prime of Miss Jean Brody four times this weekend. And my question to you is, what movies have you seen where you immediately had to watch them again afterwards? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It doesn't happen to me. Really? Really, Aida? <laughs> I mean, I think four hours in one sitting is a long time to be consuming media. Fair. Uh, I mean, the same I'm, media. Oh, I did it over a weekend. Okay, so. that. give me a break. Give me some time to eat food, digest. I can come back and watch <laughs> yes. the movie again. Yes. Yes, in fact, I could do so. I mean, in high school, I, I'm pretty sure I once saw Bring It On four times in one weekend. So, oh, well, girl, but that's the exception to the rule. In theaters. So. In theaters. <laughs> in theaters, Aida. <laughs> well, I remember being younger and doing like a double feature day where you would like buy a ticket to one movie and then sneak into like 10 other ones for the rest of the day. Yes. That was, that's an event. That's an event I'll do. That's an outing. I, I may have done that with um, Inside Lewin Davis, actually. Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, I love the soundtrack and the movie. You know, that's, that's in, I think we've talked about this before, you know, like my like, two favorite um, Coens are that and Burn After Reading. And so I, mm. I definitely remember like I first watched Inside Lewin Davis and um, I feel like it came out later when um, the screener was also sort of already out too. Uh, so I remember, or maybe I just saw it late, but I watched Inside Lewin Davis and then I also watched the screener later that weekend. Mm, I see. Yeah. Uh, that also calls to mind the cover of 500 Miles with Justin Timberlake and Carrie Mulligan, which is maybe my favorite thing Justin Timberlake has ever done. But also, by the way, that makes me want to say, I've been revisiting the catalog of Peter, Paul, and Mary over the weekend, who are kind of (laughs) maligned in retrospect because of, I think, the song Puff the Magic Dragon, which I hate and is very light. Mm -hmm. Guys, Mary fucking brings it. If you listen to most of that catalog, that is a rage coming out that really fucking works. I really recommend revisiting Peter, Paul, and Mary. They're not as soft as you remember. Uh, Listen, I love getting down with 3P. (laughs) (laughs) PPM, yeah. Uh, I feel like people mostly know that their name from the Britney song three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm. Yes, uh-huh. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Sorry, I had to find it in the song. I had to get to the place. So I got there. I got there. Um, what have I been consuming this week? It's been uh, just like scattershot. Honestly, I have been trying to find new artists that aren't necessarily in the mainstream, but I still love. And I am a huge Jamiroquai fan and always have Sure. Been. That I, nigga's in the mainstream, girl. I know, no. But Jamiroquai was just the beginning point. Oh, Let okay. Me Let me go in. I'm like, have you ever heard of Jamiroquai? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, there's, an, uh, there's a young artist. She's about 24. Her name is Remy Wolf. And she is making music that is so clearly inspired by Jamiroquai. And I recommend everyone go listen to Disco Man and Photo ID, these two wonderfully produced pop hits. Like Remy Wolf is is definitely next up, and I, I do recommend that you go listen to her. And she's also uh, my age and doing very well for herself in the music world. Uh, along with that, I'm so far up Stephen Sondheim's ass, I can like feel his throat at this point. Get the fuck out! <laughs> now you're so talking much. to me. Here we go. Here we go. I mean, it's not a good week if I don't get a Greens, Greens, Greens reference from Ira anyway. So, but I went back. I watched Into the Woods. I winced when she says robbing me, raping me, but made my way through it and just like spent all of this past week rewatching my favorite Sondheim musicals, which of course include Sunday in the Park with George, mm-hmm. Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber of Fleet Street, Company. Of, like I could go on and on and on and on about how much I love Stephen Sondheim and reminding myself to go back and like 
play instruments and to play piano and to and to try and find even a semblance of talent and wisdom and just innate ability that Stephen Sondheim just has running coursing through him. Love him so much. And then also a television show I cannot recommend any more than I'm about to. Oddly enough, it's also a British show. It's a BBC show called People Just Do Nothing. And it is a show, it's a mockumentary, if you guys are fans, of course, of The Office or Parks and Recreation, of uh, a group of rowdy older men in West London who create a pirate radio station called Corrupt FM. And the show follows their odd, eccentric staff. It's really good. It's really funny, very uncomfortable, and just hilarious. So you can find that. It's called People Just Do Nothing, and you should definitely watch it if you are looking for a laugh. I've been doing a lot of that, trying to find laughter right now. Sondheim, along with... Prime of Miss Jean Brody point out to me just the transcendent power of wit. You know, if you're feeling like you need to escape, wit is what takes me there. There's something like, that's like the, the human spirit for me. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. like yes. uh, is, is revitalizing. Mm. Definitely. His ability to play with language and just truly one of the best joke writers I think of our time, let alone like just cunning punning <laughs> all of the things <laughs> all of the things that, that you need to create uh, music and this insane lyricism I, I love Stephen Sondheim I, he's the only white man whose feet I would fall to <laughs> aww that's so sweet thank you that's the kindest word. I've actually been revisiting Sondheim recently, too, mostly because um, I have never been a huge Sunday in the Park with Jordan aficionado. Um, mostly because, like, I enjoy it, but, you know, I'm definitely into the woods. Sweeney Todd um, company are my faves. Um, so I've been spending more time with that one. And also a little night music, which I think we all just need to accept is is not great. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. That's yeah. Fine. I enjoy the Tony's performance from Catherine Zeta-Jones, but my favorite Sondheim song is Putting It Together from Study of the Park yeah. of George. Yes, so. uh-huh. Truly, yeah. every time I get frustrated with anything or trying to do any art, it is truly a reminder. The art of making art is putting it together. What I was watching this week was... um. Jerry Maguire. Oh, you were. And I will wow. explain why. I will explain why I was diving into Cameron Crowe's oeuvre. <laughs> um, Tom Cruise's, in fact, uh, more so than Cameron, was there's this tweet. There's always those like um, one gotta go tweets, you know, where there are four things and you have to get rid of one of them. And this one said, um, you have to delete one actor's filmography permanently, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and the actors were Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Russell Crowe, and Christian Bale. Interesting. Now, I think we all knew who's got to go. <laughs> well, hold on. Let me think. Wait, hold, wait, wait, who was the third one? Russell Crowe? Yeah. Hmm. I will say, I do feel like Russell Crowe has only been in four good movies. And I love The Insider. So that would be my instinct, but I don't know. I definitely said clip Russell Crowe. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Particularly because, one, I think his performance as Javert in Les Mis is the worst performance that any of those four have ever produced. <laughs> Interesting. I feel like that's slightly unfair. <laughs> well, I'm going to just, well, I, I think there's competition. I think Tom Cruise in Far and Away fucking sucks. But, I mean, if we're talking about accents, it's, it's one of the, uh, the nadirs of Hollywood A-listers attempting an accent. But you might be right. I also personally didn't like Tom Cruise in Minority Report. Any movie where like a 5'4 man is trying to be commandeering, I don't like it. <laughs> you think it's a lie. Yeah. It's too much. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just discriminatory. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but yes, yeah, so many people online kept trying to say it was Tom Cruise, and then people were defending him, and it was actually a beautiful moment for me because, like, I love Tom Cruise as an actor, uh, and I love his films, and it, it, it's so rare that you actually get to have a moment where you say that online and you don't have people sliding into your mentions about <laughs> Scientology or whatever have you. Uh, uh -huh. And yes, I get it, but also let's not be reductive. You know, uh, Russell Crowe allegedly beat up a woman at a hotel. So right. mm -hmm. <laughs> don't, don't defend one over the other. Anyway, I was defending him over Russell Crowe for being um, the person that people would cut, and that led me to revisit some Tom Cruise's, specifically Jerry Maguire, and I think it is still a perfect movie. Perfect. You know, I, I miss I miss that um, 90s era of a movie that feels like a movie in the sense of, like, specifically what films were in the 90s. Like, A Pretty Woman or something is like that, too. You know, like, the, mm -hmm. the, the stars of the 90s were in specific movies that felt very much like studio Hollywood films, the way that, you know, yes. like, if you go back and look like at uh, Bringing Up Baby, you know, like the Catherine Hepburn films, like, they felt like studio films of the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is just a lost sort of form of filmmaking um, that I really enjoyed because I will tell you that even knowing that, like, that you complete me and you had me at hello, um, <laughs> shit is coming, I was full-on ugly sobbing at the end of that movie. And I don't know what the fuck I was going through that night, but it hit me. Uh, and I just found it so mesmerizing and fun. And um, I, in retrospect, you know, like, I really appreciated the relationship between him and um, Cuba Gooding in it, but also mm -hmm. the relationship between Cuba and Regina King in that movie is great. And she mm -hmm. is so fantastic in that film, and it is actually... A shame that she wasn't nominated because I think in retrospect, people can watch it and be like, yeah, that was a fucking great performance. But because she was just starting out, then it wasn't on people's radar, especially, you know, like nominating some black woman for like a good performance in a movie like that. When, you know, it was the flashier Cuba. Right, right. And Tom, who were nominated and Cuba won, of course. And Tom and did Cuba had the iconic line. Yeah. And, yeah, right. and Tom mm -hmm. did not win. And, and let me tell you, he lost to Jeffrey Rush in shine which mm, <laughs> no one of, the, <laughs> one of the less iconic best actor wins ultimately i do love jeffrey rush but uh that is also one of my favorite best supporting actress years it would have been a tough year for regina because she would have been up against julia binoche mm. and marianne jean baptiste mm -hmm. and you know just like these people who slayed yeah. in these fucking movies that said what i remember about jerry Maguire also is that there was a time we put jay moore in everything oh god and it was kind of like oh jay moore is going to be this kind of like like the popular D-bag actor. And then I don't know who we really replaced him. Like there was that, that class of people like Jamie Kennedy, you know, just people playing like kind of dweeby, but like, you know, asinine roles. And also Bonnie Hunt. Yeah. I feel like he was replaced by the show Entourage. Yes, yeah, correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You didn't meet Jay Moore. You just had a whole show of <laughs> Jay Moore's. <laughs> <laughs> Ira, to your point, I mean, maybe it's because we're living in it and I'm not noticing it, but I haven't felt the ushering in of a new genre in the past 10 years as far as movies are concerned. And I can see very distinctly in the 90s, there was the feel-good protagonist movie where you follow this man, like, trying to get over an obstacle he created for himself and you're with him the entire time. Like, 
I, I just haven't seen that. Or we see a, a Renee Zellweger playing like a secretary next door character mm. that you see that he's going to fall in love with her, but you're still waiting. Like, will they, won't they? There's something so expected about the film. Yes. But it's done well in mm-hmm. that, yes, I missed that film of just like, this is the protagonist's story and this is what you're getting. I, I mm-hmm. mean, obviously we have that in cinema, you know, but I feel like films have either shifted to being more naturalistic yes. or... Something, something about a mesmerizing um, leading man mm-hmm. in a film, and you can't tell me that Tom Cruise is not absolutely mesmerizing in that film. I mean, that's sort of him at like his hottest. Yeah, I think also before people realized how short he was, because, <laughs> because <laughs> I am pretty you can't sure tell. you can't tell on the screen. I don't think you could tell in that movie. There, there's specific moments in Jerry Maguire where there are like lights or chandeliers or things like hanging low, and he like bumps <laughs> into one at one point, and I'm like, Cameron Crowe is hiding the fact that this man is short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or they never let him stand by <laughs> Kelly Preston, only across yeah. from her. <laughs> like, they know what they're doing. <laughs> I wonder if leading men, in a way, have been sort of Christopher Nolanized, and now, like, when you think of someone like Ryan Gosling, there, there's like a, a brooding quality necessarily, a brooding flaw, you know. And yes. I and I wonder if yeah. that's moved us away from the Tom Cruise Jerry Maguire space. I don't know. We also tend to write storylines now where you don't necessarily need to like the person who is in charge of moving the plot line. You're like you're deliberate, they're deliberately flawed. You're not supposed to necessarily relate to them, and that makes it. Uh, difficult for us to sensationalize male actors, I think, the same way that we did in the 90s when it was all hunky-dory. That anti-hero, yeah. you know, vibe. Not that I need more movies about, you know, like, straight men, mm-hmm. you know, but it would be nice to see um, queer men in roles like this, you know, because I was watching this movie like this and I was crying over this romance and I was like, that's something that could exist um, but told with someone who isn't a straight white cis male, you know? And it's um, mm-hmm. just this idea that we don't get to have stories like that, you know? They're, especially for, like, queer leading men. Like, they're always about something else, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And never about something like that, which is just about romance and, like, his job and his friendships. And um, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm going actor sexual, Lewis. I'm going <laughs> to car- start caring about actors and their nominations and their roles, and that's all I'm going to talk about on this podcast. Oh my god! Uh, if, if I, we're going to spar, uh, I just want to be clear that I do not, I do not forgive Cameron Crowe for Elizabethtown or we bought a zoo. So oh. if you if you got the impression from this podcast, <laughs> we bought a zoo. yeah, I forgot about that film. I also realized um, I've seen no post Vanilla Sky Cameron Crowe film. I've not seen Elizabethtown, and oh. I haven't seen We Bought a Zoo, and I haven't seen Aloha. Oh, my oh. God, that was him, too. Oh, no. I saw that. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> when he was in his bag, he was really in his bag, but I have no interest in seeing the other ones, because even Vanilla Sky is a bit. Thank God for Tom and Penelope <laughs> and, uh, and, and Cameron Diaz just being unhinged. The best thing Cameron Crowe ever did, by the way, was be married to Nancy Wilson from Heart. I was listening to These Dreams today. The woman can say. When we're back, we're going to talk with, shockingly, an anti-hero, but also a leading man, (laughs) Rami Yusuf. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, 
that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today, mashallah, is a Golden Globe winning actor who's up for not one, but two Emmys this year. He's a comic who created, writes, directed, produced, and stars in Hulu's sitcom Rami. Please welcome Rami Youssef. Oh my gosh. I mean, that was great to get the, the Ra on Rami. That was <laughs> yeah, really, I'm here really for cool. you, Rami. Rami, <laughs> Rami, you. I, I... Rami. This was that, that's this is less about you and more about me. Me <laughs> showing off that I can I can do what I just did. So welcome to our show. We're so happy to have you. I'm elated actually. Oh, oh thank you. I've been 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 really excited to be here. I almost texted you harassing you before you came on, and I was like, you know what? No, I'll just save it all for when he's here in live. <laughs> I know. I, I was kind of anticipating it. I was like, there's no way morning of I'm not gonna wake up to some sort of like height like i imagine the way maybe like michael jordan would harass opponents before the game yeah. <laughs> i was like there's no way there's no way i'm not gonna get that kind of vibe up top but here we are you know walking in with total harmony I, and so i'm i'm very excited that you're here I, it's like i think you'd probably know this when i started stand up i was in pursuit of other muslim stand-ups and it was like you and Kumail and that's all I could find and I think Dina Hashem I'm not quite sure yet on that one but like seeing you do stand-up was definitely an impetus for me to be like okay if he can do it I can do it and not in the offensive way in the way that's like yeah. he's Muslim I'm Muslim <laughs> if he can do it I can do it so I, I just appreciate your existence um how, how have you been how's how is this like ninth month of quarantine oh man no, I really appreciate your existence. Just even again, um, it's kind of overwhelming to not only to walk into the Rami, but the soft S on Muslim. Uh, <laughs> this is already a great, already a great morning, already a great morning when we're not zing it up. Um, I've been good. I've been. Um, it's kind of crazy making a little bit, obviously, because it's like we're inside and all that. Everyone's going through it, and and I kind of convinced myself at a certain point that I was like, oh, I need to go outside and I need to work out more. And so I went out to play basketball and immediately uh, tore three ligaments in my ankle. 
so so i've been like so i've been like so so i have like a boot so now i'm fully stuck inside and so um that's been an adjustment but i will say quarantine is the best time to be unable to walk yeah yeah i mean but also like who were you playing when you got hurt man i wasn't i wasn't playing anyone worthy of getting hurt to to be honest it was not oh then never mind it was not no 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 it was totally all on me like not yeah not not a cool story but otherwise it's been really good it's been really good just trying to stay healthy you know like everyone you know my mom uh getting all the whatsapp conspiracies and 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 all that um she's (laughs) Mm -hmm. tried to get me to watch plandemic uh six times Wait, is that the movie where this like Indian American woman is explaining how this is all a scam and yeah. Uh, yeah, my mom sent that to me too. It's a lesson. It's in the curriculum at WhatsApp University. She sent it to me too. <laughs> so I I've, I've seen it. I've seen parts of it. The pandemic shit is funny to me because I like I cracked the fuck up in the show when your mom like makes the loose change reference because <laughs> mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about loose change in a minute, <laughs> yeah. but in the midst of like pandemic and QAnon and all this other shit, like I remember the quaintness of when like people would be like, have you watched loose change on YouTube? <laughs> and I feel like I never did. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we never really like digested that as a nation, like the amount of people who would be like, you know, steel beams can't melt, you know, like like kind of like all that yeah. kind of all that stuff. Like we've never really done like a deep dive on, on what that did to us. Yeah. But what I want to ask about the show is which which I adore. And um, it's really uh, interesting seeing like a comedy drama too almost i sort of liken it to like a um sex in a city almost in the sense that like your character especially in the end of season two feels a lot like carrie bradshaw in that like it's a character who's like funny and like we're seeing them explore their sexuality and like for her it was like exploring her sexuality as a woman and like this was you exploring your sexuality like as a muslim and um when you're sort of like, fuck everything up at the end, it's sort of like, oh, this is an anti-hero that we're watching. Like, we thought you were getting better, um, but you're actually just trash. Um, um, but human, like all of us. And what I want to ask is, <laughs> what drew you to making a show like this instead of what you would sort of expect from um, someone who's a stand-up and so funny to not have a show about that being your life? You know, when I first heard about Rami on mm. Hulu, I was like, oh, so this is going to be a show about, like, him being a stand-up uh, in New York. And then it wasn't. And I love mm. that it w- you didn't go in that direction. Yeah, it, so much of it for us was, like, we want it to be relatable. You know, we're trying to talk about something that hasn't been explored. And so we want to give people a real way in. And so for me, the least relatable thing is, like, the pain of an open mic uh, or, or kind of watching somebody navigate comedy is like, is really kind of insane. Um, but, but I think so much of it for me was when you see someone being a standup, it's almost like they know what they're talking about or they have this like kind of um, dominating point of view and so much of the character that I wanted to create and so much of what I try to do in standup is kind of bring people to this realization of, I'm not going to tell you what to think, or I'm not even going to tell you exactly what I think, but I'm going to tell you what my questions are. And I wonder if you've had these questions too. And these are kind of intimate questions, or these are kind of fucked up questions, or or whatever they might be. 
but having a character who was seeking was really interesting to me. I didn't want to make a show called Rami and it's just me kind of like charming baristas and, you know, killing it. And, and I, like, I'm like, I want to make, I want to make something that is like actually, you know, an intimate look at someone who's, who's trying to be the, the best version of themselves. And, and cause that to me was like a depiction of faith that um, I didn't feel like I ever saw in like a grounded way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with a TV show called Charming Baristas and Killing It, by the way. If anybody wants to pitch it, I think it'd be great. But uh, um, I-, I was wondering, how agonizing is the wait to the Emmys? What people don't realize is this is the longest wait between nominations and a show, I think, all year. It's like a couple months at least. And you are up against, in the Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series category, just straight-up legends altogether. Like, Anthony Anderson, who I think just tied the record for most nominations for a single role in this category, but then Don Cheadle, Ted Danson, Michael Douglas, Eugene Levy, and then you, and I believe you're younger than I am, so I'm angry. (laughs) What's it like to be in that company, and are you excited for the Emmys? I mean, to your point, I am the only person in the category who is not at major risk for the coronavirus, (laughs) Um, and I I feel like... I do feel like um, that should be part of the campaign as to why uh, people should should vote for me, because uh, I think one thing we want from our Emmy winners is that, uh, you know, they, they stick around. Vitality. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Vitality. You know, we want that vitality. Um, it's the corny thing for our show to be nominated. That's really all we needed. Like for me to get one as an actor and a director, for Mahershala to get one for supporting actor, for a show like us that allows us to make more episodes it allows people to feel like oh maybe we should watch this and so i actually don't really feel any tension in waiting to see if we get wins because it actually is an honor to be nominated like I, it's kind of wild but like that's true it, it really is and and so um i feel really good about that do we believe them guys i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Go <either> way. Yeah. <laughs> do i rami i'll guess you up for, for always but like Watching the show this second season, of course, put the character Rami Hassan in a totally different world. He's got a lot of things that he needs to do in season three, which congratulations. I know that you guys are getting a season three. But um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, how is that looking like? Is there any production things laid out? Anything figured out quite yet? Or are y'all just playing it by ear? Thanks to Corona. We're, yeah, we're, we're going to start writing at the end of September. And then we're just going to see what happens. We're going to see if we're going to be able, when we're going to be able to make the show. I kind of am in a position where I already was feeling like we were going to, because the way these shows get made, actually, you bring up the Emmys, it's like they get greenlit and scheduled in order to make the Emmy cycles. And so we already going into season three, we knew we're going to miss the next Emmy cycle because we can't run right into making the show. We had like no gap between season one and season two. Mm-hmm. So we already were kind of like, we're going to take it a little bit slower and then now, um, you know, now with this, I'm, I'm kind of in a spot where I'm like, I want to kind of lead by being slow. I, I don't want to be like, we're the fir- one of the first back to set. It's like, I'd rather be one of the last back to set because I want to make sure that, that people are safe, you know. Mm-hmm. Good, good diplomatic answer, <laughs> Rami, but get to it. I need to know what happens next. <laughs> one thing that I really enjoyed on the series and um you know like what i tweeted about the other day is um nasim's character um you know this representation of a gay muslim man uh who is um sort of dealing with this years of repression um and but you also get to see him be like a full um sort of realized problematic person you know the same way everyone else on the show gets to be and i sort of want to know about like your conversations in 
creating not just the scene, but the other characters on the show, you know, seeing like um, the chic too, you know, and like um, what conversations you have in the room um, with the people who you write it with, where you're sort of like, this is something that we want to tackle. And then do you ever feel like the pressure of like, damn, how are people going to respond to this? Yeah, um, I think we know the pressure exists for a show like ours because we're kind of the only, we're, we're taking a stab at it right now from a place that isn't under the umbrella of violence or national security. So that's really where you're seeing a lot of these characters uh, under that umbrella for the first time. And I think there's a lot of like, desire for them to be a certain way. So we know that there is this instinct from like a community level to protect these characters, but we obviously want them to feel like real people. So that that's kind of at the core of crafting every character. And then crafting a character like Nassim, yeah, it, it I like the way you said too, that someone who's been kind of holding onto it for so many years, because I think what we're looking at is not just a, a gay Muslim, but we're looking at a gay person of that generation. And I do think that there is a divide between how sexuality is able to be expressed for those of us coming up today as opposed to men of his generation. And I think um, there's a lot of universality in that. And, and I think that's kind of what we want to do with all our characters is look at um, the types of divides and the types of things that are really universal and then also show them with that added layer of uh, of our culture and our faith. Well, I mean, Rami, don't let anyone tell you you're not a terrorist. I say that to say. <laughs> <laughs> I say that to say. I'm a Muslim woman with a differently abled brother who probably has dealt with my own porn addiction. So the show Rami is a targeted attack on my person. Like, I just want that to be known. But um, most specifically, the character of Zayna, of course, blew my fucking mind. Like, I, I, I knew that was happening because I auditioned and didn't get it. But like, let's move past that. But, um, <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> let's move immediately Aida past that. Aida is bringing you to the red table. <laughs> yeah, you're, it's over, Rami. The weirdest thing is that um, Ira auditioned too. So it was like, oh, wow. It was neck and neck. Going it through was those me. tapes. <laughs> but, but I wanted to ask you, like, I, I think I've been spoiled with the show, Rami, because you guys do so many revolutionary things for the Muslim community and talk about colorism in the Muslim community and what it looks like to be a practicing black Muslim, which I had never seen for a woman character. Like, what, what led you to want to write that storyline and why was that important for you, especially now? Mm. I'm going to be totally honest. Like, this, this show is story-driven and the way that I drive the story is making sure that it feels organic to my experience. So I think, you know, we had a first season where we really were focusing on the Arab Muslim community um, and looking at Arab Muslims in Jersey and this particular family too. Um, and then we really get into the idea of wanting to have the Shaykh and then we get really kind of like a divine collaboration with Mahershala Ali showing up to be the sheikh. And then it becomes really clear the thing that's going to strengthen the story is an honest, really cool depiction of seeing a sheikh's daughter and seeing this um, person who challenges uh, Rami in a way and, and, and really presents something um, that, yeah, we haven't seen. But like, I don't walk into the show being like, I, Rami Yusuf, need to create a black Muslim woman character because that is kind of crazy because that's not my experience and it's not <laughs> it's not me. And I, and I get really sensitive to kind of being like, well, we should do the things that 
um, that we know, you know, like, especially with something like this. So because I, I never want to take authority over someone else's story. But the character of Zainab is a really good example of like, the organic story kind of taking us to a place where, oh, this character needs to be in this world. And so she's there because she was always there. And she's there because she needs to be there. And that's why I love her character. She's not there on some agenda of like, we need to talk about it. So we're gonna like, try and create it out of thin air. She's there because, yeah, she always was. And that that's really uh, exciting for us as a show to be able to, to to get into that. And then there's this kind of like, it's a whatever type of serendipity you want to call it, positive, negative, but like our show comes out really on the eve of all the things that were going on in Minnesota and, mm-hmm. and, and, and all these things that are happening around the world. Um, and so I think a lot of those conversations end up, yeah, matching up in a way too, but not really the goal as much as it is oh, this is where it needs to go. Yeah. Tell me about filming with Mahershala Ali because watching these scenes, which are sometimes, I think what I love about them specifically is just they're long and just two-person scenes, like the best of theater, as Mm -hmm. Ira, I'm sure, would agree. But there's no other word for it. The gravitas he brings is so eminently watchable. Like every like kind of facial movement he, he brings is like, touched with, I don't know, wisdom or um, mystery, kind of. And so it's always an intense viewing experience. But I just want to know, is he that intimidating to work with? He, he, he brings such a clear command to the screen. No, it's really more the kind of thing where it's like we would cut and he'd be like, did we get that? Is that, is that good? Is that right? <laughs> like, like it, it's, a, it's like, so it's, and, and I think the, the most impressive thing about him is his ability to shift. You know, because he's the embodiment of the acting principle where they tell you it should feel like the first time every time. Mm -hmm. And he really brings that energy where like before we got into the season, he, he had messaged me and he was like, man, I'm feeling nervous. And I'm like, oh, haha, like this is kind of like some, you know, humble, you know, kind of like whatever that this dude's putting on. And then he shows up and he's got a ton of questions for me and like he's like could we talk in the trailer and I'm like oh this dude's nervous like like he's actually like not in a way that he's insecure you know it's not it's not like an insecurity it's more just like he is approaching it in such a pure way like it's so real for him that he wants to get this depiction right and he really honors it and and so that was amazing to work with and it's not intimidating at all it's inspiring because it, it it makes me feel like, wow, I want to make sure that I'm bringing this energy. And and in many ways, it's built in for me to bring a, an energy like that because it's my show. But even more, I'm like, man, for him to be at that level, I still got to be even more connected and more inspired because I'm, I'm surrounded by someone who could easily phone it in. And, and he's so, um, so present to what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Anybody who wins two Oscars that fast and doesn't retire has some sort of <laughs> magical quality. So I instinctively trust him. <laughs> uh, not that I'm expecting um, the show has turned out a bunch of Dennis's, but do you hear from people who are just sort of like um, learning something about faith from the show um, and, you know, making them think about their lives differently? I mean, what's been so interesting about the show for me is that it's even reminded me a bit of like, um, like I May Destroy You in the sense of um, I feel like a lot of the TV I'm responding to in 2020 has about been trying to become a better person um, and reckoning with your past and knowing that like we can't like erase parts of our past and like how people accept you when you move forward. And, you know, I'm not particularly religious, but I was raised Baptist. Um, but I found that like so much of the 
conversation that's had on this show um, about, you know, sort of like respecting yourself and like respecting your religion or faith uh, is sort of like a how a lot of younger people will talk, you know, about like therapy or about like crystals or whatever, like whatever spirituality shit that we have in LA that sort of replaced what I grew up with. And I talk about it in the same terms. Um, so it's a long way of asking, like, do you hear from people who like aren't religious, who are like really responding to this in an interesting way? Um, and even people learning more about like Muslim culture, you know, like I feel like I had always heard people pronounce it that way the mm. scene with oh the pussy scene so good pussy yeah. muslim and like and not um muslim and even me myself like i wanted to hit myself earlier when i'm when i'm saying chic i'm like what that's not how you say it anyway <laughs> <laughs> no it's a it's a really good question because yes like the short answer is i do i hear from a lot of people who grew up muslim and they'll be like I kind of started praying after I watched the show, mm. which is funny because I think detractors of the show will be like, it's ruining Islam. And then I'm like, no, nah, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> teach Islam, but it never <laughs> really tried to do that. You know, but but I do I do hear from people who don't have a spiritual practice and they're kind of like, I'm interested in Islam now, or even more commonly, just people being like, it made me think about like really just wanting to plug into something. And I think that um, we're really in a time where, yeah, we're really, you know, and, and I think you pointed it out in a really good way. Um, we're never not figuring out a replacement for whatever it is that we did grow up with, right? So we're either mm-hmm. continuing that tradition or we're building a new one, but there is a very clear God part of the brain that we all have where we want to submit to something and we know that there is an order um, that can help us with our ego and with our desires and with our biggest desire of wanting to be the best version of ourselves and so that that's what the verb is for these characters and that verb of wanting to fill that gap between where you're at to where you want to be is not only something that everyone relates to it's also like it's like a super american concept on a level of like like i mean whether you know the the concepts of rags to riches or the concept Mm -hmm. of like really kind of working your way up but unfortunately, we kind of live in a, in, 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 a, in a country where that is only really prioritized economically, not spiritually. And so the types of goals that we have, the types of upward mobility that we're looking at in this country is all about money. And it's all about um, that type of success. And I think we as a society are really hungry for like, man, can we like go rags to riches in terms of our moral code? Mm-hmm. Can we go rags to riches in like how we treat ourselves and how we treat people? Can we really dig into uh, having personal goals? This show gets really messy with that and really takes that head on. And I think that's the part that people are responding to. And then big part of Islam is that there are many paths to God. And so like, it's not inclusive or exclusive. It's more just like, can this open up that conversation that I think a lot of us want to have? No, I was just saying, I mean, I, de- I definitely see that in the show and appreciate it. And, you know, I was talking about that season two finale earlier, but it's like it's it, the reason it hits is because you you watch that. And, you know, I'm like, I've been that person, you know, mm. you know, the moment where you try to be better and then you fuck up again. And then you you you're, you have to confront the fact that you did it. I've been thinking about ever since you brought up Sex in the City, Carrie Bradshaw having a porn addiction. And I'm angry mm-hmm. we didn't get that. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I, I, I definitely remember the episode in season two where your mother is like 
your character's mother is grappling with gender identity and what it means to be they them and how I use that episode as an entry point to talk to my mother about the gender binary or what it means or what it means for her to have a gender queer Muslim daughter and what that looks like. And the fact that I still call myself a daughter, like all of that was just like ugh, confusing for her. So, I mean, it's, it's hard and difficult to find media that has that overlap of Islam and, you know, gender studies. And I, this might be one of the, if not for me, at least the first one that did that. So that, get, that makes me really excited. And I know that you signed a overall deal with A24 and I know that you're interested in making new shows. So where's your head with that plan right now? Are we gonna get more Muslim stories? What is Rami feeling? We're, um, you know, I, I think part of what you're hitting on with that episode, and, and that's really part of kind of like what I get excited about with making the show is like, if I could encapsulate kind of the feeling that I feel in connecting with the audience is there are some people who are really polarized by what we're doing and they kind of feel like, you know, and, and, and you know them, Ida, like the, the, the types of detracting that, that could happen. But I think at its best, we're making people feel less lonely because we're kind of getting into certain things where if no one has seen an episode like the one you were talking about or no one's felt this thing, like we're we're able to get into something that, and we're able to do it in a way that I, I'm proud of being like, we're not being didactic. We're not trying to be preachy. We're just trying to like have fucking fun and mm. also make people feel less lonely. And to me, that is the mission statement behind anything that I want to do is like, are we really kind of looking at something at a point of view that is not some sort of like press kit on, you know, making people look good. It's about making people feel three-dimensional. And so that that really, for me, in the stories that I'm excited to branch into, there is a, a Muslim story around immigration that I'm working um, a show on at, at Netflix. There's um, a story that we're uh, developing at Apple with Steve, who's on my show, that really looks at the disabled community um, mm-hmm. where people who aren't disabled are the side characters. Our <laughs> real main characters are... Uh, this cast of disabled people, and, and we're hoping to get that picked up where we also have, uh, dis, you know, a lot of disabled writers. And, and, and what's so cool even about this pandemic is really solidifying the idea of like, yeah, you can have a writer on Zoom, like you can do anything on Zoom, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we're now able to like give people who wouldn't have had opportunities more opportunities because it just becomes really clear, like, look, we can make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that that's a huge benefit to me kind of coming out of this. And that's the type of work that I'm interested in doing. And so um, being able to zone in on that with people who I really am interested in, giving them a voice and kind of like figuring out how to support them so that they can do their own thing. And so so that... Um, that that's something that we're we're pumped to to get into. Inshallah, if I haven't done enough Islamic peacocking on this podcast, <laughs> inshallah. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Rami. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank yeah. you guys, and uh, just audition next year. You know, both you guys. Yeah, and yeah, I know yeah, you were both. Yeah. I know you were both. Really, I know sure, you were both. Sure. I know you both really wanted that Zainab role, and, and I, I, you know, it. it there will be other things though, you know, and, and I, and I, it sucks that, that you two have to compete kind of in that same type casting, but, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll work on, on something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would gladly take a girlfriend role for your really hot sister. So just get that going when you figure it out in September. <laughs> no more ingenue roles for Ira. I'm sick of it. <laughs> Too much. Thanks, Robbie. Oh, See you later. So glad we finally did this. Bye. The Living 
room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. As we've discussed on the show before, rapper, legend, Megan the Stallion was shot in July. Uh, she was shot in the foot by an unknown assailant. Um, we all suspected it was uh, rapper Tory Lanez, but on Instagram Live recently, she finally came out and said that he was the person who shot her, and the reason why she did not announce it at the time was that you know the police were coming, and she was worried about Tory Lanez, a black man, being killed by the police when they came to deal with the situation. And, you know, that is something that just sort of had my heart breaking for her all week. The fact that she had to think about this man's safety over her own in that situation. She shouldn't have to be queen and slim. (laughs) Not both at the same time. Queen and slim. (laughs) (laughs) She went on Instagram Live like you're talking about, Ira, to talk about everything that happened and to finally, you know, give her own public testimony to the way that she could. And yeah, it led out to us that she disclosed a lot of information for out of fear, out of wanting to protect Tory Lanez, out of wanting to, and also to remember that it, it happened July 12th when we were still and still are in the middle of dealing with militant cops and trying to deal with our own fear as far as being a black person and having to encounter police. So yeah, my heart is, I'm just devastated right now trying to figure out why this nigga did this to Meg the Stallion? Like I don't, un- I just don't understand. There's no justification. There's no real information about what happened, other than black women are just not safe. Black women are entirely not safe around angry black men. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, like I know on Twitter, I guess a lot of people discuss this, but it just feels like this story hasn't gotten enough attention. It feels weird to me. You know, like this is something that is hitting on a bunch of things that we're all talking about all the time right now, yeah. and yet. She's an extremely popular entertainer peaking right now. Yeah. And yet it's sort of like the fifth thing we know about her at the moment. I don't know. I just think it's strangely sitting in pop culture right now. It's not rising to where it should in the conversation. And then when people do speak, you have someone like T.I. who was quick to run to the defense of Meg Thee Stallion but said about Tory Lanez, how could you shoot someone in a bikini? So it's, which is to say that the reason that black women are valuable in any way and that we shouldn't inflict pain and trauma on them is because they're these shiny, beautiful, delicate objects of affection for black men. Or you get other men in Hollywood who refuse to speak out about it until they say something like, "Um, I'm going to wait until we have the full story. Like, what other information do you need Mm. to speak out against Tory Lanez because of this? He shot her. That is a fact. She told us that's what happened. What else could have happened? Meg could have had a gun and I still wouldn't have cared. Meg didn't shoot this man. Meg didn't do anything to inflict pain or trauma toward the direction of that man. It's all just such a frustrating situation. It's especially a frustrating situation because you have, like you said, people on one side who are just sort of stripping away 
her humanity because there's this idea that because she is a black woman, she is quote unquote resilient, you know, and sort of this idea that um, this happened. And then you have the WAP video and like this like um, mm-hmm. empowering moment. So it's like, oh, of course that didn't phase her, you know? Uh, it reminds me so much of like um, when I read Claudia Rankin's essay about Serena Williams, you know, the idea of like how when they talk about her in tennis, you know, they talk about her muscles and her body, you know, like and her as sort of like this um, black woman who maybe exudes what other people would say as more masculine features because they're in contrast to, you know, um, petite white features, you know, that, and that sort of strips away their humanity and caring about them in a way, and I know that we would be talking about this differently if Megan were white or even, you know, like the Rihanna situation, you know? Because Rihanna, you know, was, was not a dark-skinned black woman. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know? It, it just seems unfortunate to have to deal with this discourse online um, and seeing less people talking about it than I feel that they should. Um, I mean, like, I only recently found out that Tory Lanez is Canadian. I know, girl. <laughs> we need to get him deported. Deport his ass, Deport. Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Justin Trudeau. <laughs> and, and this is, and this is like, you know, kind of maybe a little bit insider knowledge in some, and sometimes the black community. But I, the, my biggest fear about all of this, I mean, other than beyond he was trying to hurt her, was that he was shooting at her feet as some type of antagonization method and hit her like either way it's fucked up and the other side of it is that there's a lot of unraveling that black women just have to do right now a lot of unlearning and the onus does not fall on us to protect black men just because we know that our black men have to deal with the white institution and racism and patriarchy in ways that we can't rectify so i it's difficult there's no easy answer to this there's really no easy answer to this but it's the same reason that Women, like we, when we were talking about Drew Dixon and how she had remained quiet for a long time about Russell Simmons and how someone like Meg Thee Stallion refused to tell the police or anyone at the hospital that Tory Lane shot her, we are only hurting ourselves when we don't speak out immediately about pain inflicted on us. Also, you brought up the Rihanna situation from a decade ago, Ira. And I mean, a major difference there was that was one of the most gruesomely distributed images mm-hmm. ever. And it's like, is that what it requires so that the conversation goes where we need to go? Because that is another version of dehumanizing that, you know, I don't think tabloid culture is capable of handling, you know? Well, that also brings to mind what also happened this week on Sunday evening um, when Kenosha police, my home state of Wisconsin, at it again, <laughs> shot a man, Jacob Blake, close range in the back seven times. He was breaking up a fight between two women uh, and then police were called to the scene and of course he was tasered and then shot. This brought up conversations online about distributing gruesome images. The video was being shared and it reminded me of the George Floyd video, you know, and um, this idea that do we only care about trauma inflicted on black people when we see the photographic evidence, you know? I don't know. That that just hurts, you know? It's like, it's, it's yeah, it, maybe if we saw something of Meg, people would feel more anger, 
you know, maybe because they hear like shot in the foot, you know, it just sounds like funny to them. Ha ha. You know, as opposed to seeing that image of Rihanna with those bruises, you know, and, you know, this image of Jacob Blake. And and there were a lot of conversations about whether or not we should even be sharing these images. Right. Uh, And weirdly, I didn't see the video once in my timeline at all. I only saw my timeline with people talking about don't share the video, Mm -hmm. uh, which is at least as a plus. But, you know, I feel like that also has the Streisand effect, right? Of yeah. you say, don't show it, and then all of a sudden it, it appears. I think, Ira, you're right. And I, I do fear, though, that like there's something very human about needing to see the pain and the trauma before you start to care. Mm-hmm. And I think about Black Lives Matter and the killing of George Floyd and how ubiquitous the imagery of the knee on on his body was and how we even saw the baby repeat it in a music video at an award ceremony. So I wonder if, if, if although this isn't like the best way and it's not, doesn't make me feel the best about being a human being that like you're saying, Lewis, it would have maybe been more beneficial if we saw bullets coming out of Megan's foot. If we, if, if the video of the helicopter footage of her bleeding out was more widespread, maybe this would have been a bigger conversation too. Well, also, I mean, like, let's say there wasn't a video of this and there was just a description. I feel like we're in this space now where people call literally just a journalistic description of what happened biased in some way. Mm-hmm. Like you're not getting the picture. You're, you're, you're not understanding what really happened because it's conjecture hearing about it written down as opposed to having to fucking see it. And that's not true. If you just, like the events as just told journalistically are straight up fucking horrifying. It is not anybody adding their own perspective to it. It is to quote Michelle Obama and hot girl <laughs> summer. It is what it is. Uh, I, I'm sympathetic to what you just said, Aida about, Something about seeing this stuff triggers us in a specific way that maybe galvanizes, but it's just awful that it has to be that way or is that Mm -hmm. way. I definitely Mm -hmm. agree with people that it's horrifying for black people to have to constantly regurgitate um, these images, you know, especially, you know, like the conversation around black people who are creatives now or like even just trying to do their fucking job, like how you're able to go into work or record a podcast, you know, like when you're thinking about these images and it's just weighing you down. But there's also this idea that we're in a fucking world where everyone loves a conspiracy theory now. And even online, especially now when we're all locked down, like it it just feels like everyone is susceptible to some sort of like um, fake YouTube video or someone just tweeting something like pretending like it's fact and then all of a sudden it's decided that it's fact or you did some fucking QAnon shit, you know? And I feel like <sighs> images and photos and videos like combat that, you know? So on one hand, I think it's gross that black people have to see these horrifying images regurgitated. But on the other hand, I don't know. How else do you convince people that things are real? Because if we're talking about convincing white people that trauma happens to black people in the Jacob Blake incident. That's one thing. But then you have black people on one hand who won't even believe something that's happening to Meg. So Mm -hmm. where do we draw that difference? The closest I will ever come to understanding QAnon, though, is following Madonna on Instagram. And I'm not getting any closer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, you know, I, I, I do just hope that people do get Tori up out of here, you know? Like, we, we've had long conversations about Chris Brown and other people, and it would just be a shame to see 
him like the moment that he jumps on like someone else's song you know like as a feature or you know as on the radio again you know it's just gonna be like no one cares yeah you're Tory Lanez you are a whole piece of shit and like I I do want to thank people like Chance the Rapper who went out of their way to speak out against Tory Lanez and also woman we love Jojo who removed Tory Lanez who was originally featured on a project that's coming out Mm -hmm. so that makes me happy to hear we're getting closer um, and of course, a lot of that is going to come from black people and women before it comes from white men. But we are still getting closer. Yeah. And in the instance of Jacob Blake, who I brought up as well, um, if you can, please donate to the Milwaukee Freedom Fund, which is assisting protesters in Kenosha. And um, the GoFundMe for Jacob Blake and his family is um, GoFundMe.com slash justice for Jacob Blake. We'll be right back with Keep It. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode, maybe a little bit lighter than, <laughs> than what we were just talking about. Uh, it is Keep It. Aida, why don't you go first? Mm. My Keep It this week goes to the Conway family. Mm. Part of the Conway family. Part of the Conway family, of course. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news. There's a lot of stuff going on, but Kellyanne Conway has decided to step down from her position as advisor to our manatee, our orange manatee. And also along with that, we have seen a lot of news coming out about her daughter, Claudia Conway, her wonderful daughter, Claudia Conway, who has been making TikToks and tweeting about her horrid mother. I was worried at first. I assumed anything that came out of Kellyanne Conway's womb would certainly be some type of like demon spawn. Like Kellyanne's baby sounds like a Roman Polanski film is all I'm trying oh, to right, say. Yes. But <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely delighted and shocked to find out that Claudia's dope. And I followed her on every single app that she's on. Um, she's consistently making videos about how much she hates her mother, about how she's left leaning. And then most recently has decided that she is calling for emancipation because she hates her mother so fucking much. Um, uh, hilarious. I, I rolled out on the floor lot, like just dying thinking about that. And she <laughs> recently took to Twitter to beg AOC to adopt her, which was also very funny. <laughs> and I just want to plug. I never thought I'd be plugging a 15 year old white girl on this podcast, but everyone go follow Claudia Conway and shift the attention from Kellyanne Conway only to her young daughter, who was hilarious. So that's it. I, to Kellyanne. <laughs> I, d- I disagree. Why? <laughs> I I clearly see like colluding with the Conways coming to We TV. <laughs> I I feel like the entire family is a fucking grift. George Conway was working for the Lincoln Project. There's no way none of that has rubbed off on her, and I I just I don't mm. trust it. I don't trust it. I'm sorry. I'm sympathetic to the pessimism about it. That said, she really seems to be distancing herself. One and two slamming them it's it's not Mm -hmm. like george conway who's like i just don't like who my wife works for and i'm going to be sassy about it it is my parents Mm -hmm. are horrible for doing this so i think there's a difference in messaging there that is important also like 
I thought I was pretty slick when I was 15. I was I would not be that I don't know if the word is brave, but bold, I guess. So she's brave and she's well spoken. I mean, I don't know if this is because like the these kids have had access to the internet for much longer than we have, but they're coming in with this influx of just knowledge about the world. And she does unfortunately come from even though Kellyanne Conway doesn't seem like a functioning human being at most times. Uh, as far as intelligence by its definition goes, she does seem to have it well, for what it's worth. So I seem that her I see that her her kid is very smart too. Well, a lot of teens are living in a post Sarah Bareilles brave world, so they are braver, right? Than, than many of than many of us were. Yes, post Katy Perry roar, post yes, I'm I'm with you. The Rachel Platten times were in them. Yes, <laughs> I'll be cautiously optimistic, but I would not be shocked if we end up having a where the keys, babe, moment with Claudia Conway. <laughs> also, this is a big redemptive moment, I believe, for the name Claudia, which also got a big boost from the Babysitter's Club recently. Oh, yeah. okay. Claudia Schiffer, do you have anything for us? Let us know. <laughs> uh, Lewis, what's your keep it? Two keep it's. One is very brief. One, keep it to the phrase self-care. I don't want to hear it anymore. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's a joke that's not funny. Uh, it's something you say when you don't have the end of your joke. So you use self-care, you know, the way people used to say awkward or whatever. Um, just be more creative. Uh, the the thing about jokes that makes them good is that they are not cliches, and that's a cliche now. So we're moving on from that. Secondly, big fucking keep it to the Comey rule, the new two-part Showtime thing about James Comey and Donald Trump before the 2016 election that looks like a big, dramatic, funny, or die sketch, but it's something we're supposed to take seriously. And it features Brendan Gleeson as Donald Trump, I'm not saying Brendan Gleeson's not a great actor. It's sort of like how we still don't have a definitive telling of 9-11. Like, we haven't really wrapped our brains around the enormity of it. And right now, I'm just not in a space where I want to see the caricaturized Donald Trump that tells us exactly what we need to hear about this point in history because it's not going to be extremely accurate. It's going to have that feeling like the movie Bombshell where it's like one-ninth of the picture, you know, <laughs> We're not, we're, not, we're not on the other side of it yet. I'm, I can't be sure we're getting the whole story yet. And as much as I fucking love Holly Hunter sitting at a boardroom table, you know that's straight up catnip to Louis Vertel. I'm sad to see it in this case because it just looks like a cliche and I feel like you can deduce what you're going to get from the whole miniseries from the trailer. And also Jeff Daniels is in newsroom lighting, which just depresses me. Guys, I don't need that show again. <laughs> <sighs> My keep it is... Um... Well, one first, one keep it to the internet reactions immediately to this new show that is coming to Peacock. It's called Knots and Crosses. Um, and this is a premise that is sort of like a right-wing white supremacy thing. You know, it is the idea of what if Africa had um, colonized Europe. <laughs> um <laughs> The trailer looks very silly, uh, and it's really not something that we need now in 2020. I will counter that it is from an early 2000s book series written by um, Mallory Blackman, a black British author. And from what I've heard, the books seem to have more nuance, and she's dealt with a lot of these conversations about race back then. But I also feel like something that was sort of novel in the early 2000s doesn't really work in 2020 with that concept and especially as a TV show um, because it, it just the idea of one Africa colonized Europe and yet everyone speaks in 
European accents uh, is sort of weird <laughs> to me. And um, also, you know, it's just, it's very Terry Crews, black supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> some, some things just don't need to be TV shows, you know? Uh, some things need to be left in the past. And my last keep it is to another TV show that Lewis and I love, Big Brother. Oh, I know. Tough one. I, once again, out the gate, the season has just sort of fallen on its face because what do we have again? An all-white, huge alliance in the house just sort of picking off everyone else. And it's like, I thought that we were somehow going to not get that with All-Stars. But unfortunately, turns out we still have it. You know, turns out this show just unfortunately will always revert to white people sticking together and seeing the non-white people as sort of like threats and the way that they discuss them is steeped in racism, but they may not instinctively know that, but all of us watching at home, we get it, you know? Two things. One, when an alliance like this takes hold on Big Brother, it is, I can't understate how annoying it is to watch it roll out three times a week. Mm -hmm. It just goes on and on and on. It's so painstaking. But here's my question, secondly, about casting. One of the main players this season is this guy, Cody, who's like super good looking, brawny, like good competitor, but not interesting as a player. And I'm like, why do they always bring back or why are they interested in players like that who are like kind of run of the mill dudes who are good competitors, but not interesting strategists? Mm -hmm. To me, that is like what is wrong with Big Brother in comparison to Survivor, which never casts for that. Mm -hmm. And I think that I would have preferred to have his brother, Polly in there. Um, who who gets that, but he's more of an interesting strategist. And I will also say, this comes from someone who's seen him on multiple seasons of The Challenge now, and he has progressed as a reality television mm. star, you know? Like, he would bring something that's more interesting, um, as opposed to why this season I'm really loving Bailey, because I think that she improved by playing on The Challenge, and now she's a better competitor. Unfortunately, she and Devon are um, stuck in a house with uh, people who see them as um, a monolith, uh, for one. And like whenever they do sort of speak out about something, they're sort of being like, their mouth's talking too much, you know? Or like uh, <laughs> these black women being crazy, you know? I love Bailey. I'm glad she's on this season. Yeah. And it's just, I don't, I don't know how to fix it, but also, you know, like even when you add more people of color, like those two plus Kaser and Kevin, you know, and then David, um, and does he even count? Because he screwed over Kimmy last year and now he's screwing over Devon and Bailey, you know, but it's like when you still have a house that has like 10 white people in it and then the other like five or so are not white, um, it's still going to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sorry. Anyway. Polly, though, calls to mind how disappointed I was in Zakia that season. I thought she was going to be, like, rad, and she gave us nothing. Anyway, yeah. I'm upset. Yeah. Anyway, that's our show. Thank you to Rami Yusuf for being here, and thank you all for listening. Shukran, Rami. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go do some coke with Don Jr. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Malconian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. 
The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.